And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. As many of you know, we're going through his whole life chronologically across all four of the Gospels, putting his whole life in the order of events that things actually happened. And the reason is so that we can discover who Jesus really was, what he really did, what he really taught for ourselves. We don't want a secondhand account. We want it directly from his word so we can know him on a firsthand basis. In today's study, we're going to learn some very, very interesting things about salvation, what it means to be saved. We're going to study what's famously known as the unforgivable sin, and we're going to see once again Jesus' authority and power over everything. This week is one of the reasons why I love that we teach through the Bible verse by verse all the way through everything, because otherwise this is one of the weeks that you would skip. Because it's one of the portions of Scripture, if you read it on your own at home, you probably go, what in the world is going on with that? And it usually doesn't get taught in church. And so I really enjoy that we get to do that so that we could actually understand everything that's going on because there are some profound things that are going to happen in the text and the accounts that we're going to read today. Flipping your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Mark 3 to set this up, but they're on your outline. You don't need to turn there, but you can get your Bibles ready in Matthew chapter 12. This is what it says on your outline in Mark 3, 19. It says, and they went into a house. What the text is actually saying is that they went home. So they went back to Jesus' current base of operations, which is the town of Capernaum in northern Israel. Verse 20, it says, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. The idea is there's such a crowd there. Jesus is in a house. He can't even eat food because there's that much chaos around people trying to get access to him. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. In the strictest sense of the original Greek, when it says his own people, it means family. And that's what it means here. It's Jesus' blood relatives' family, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. His family sees what seems to be and is just chaos around us. Jesus can't even eat a meal in peace. And there's two possibilities behind their reaction. The first is that they thought Jesus is just behaving irresponsibly. They were thinking, you know, there comes a time, Jesus, when you've just got to like lock the door and tell the people to just hold on a minute so you can eat some food. And it's possible that their concern was really Jesus is going to minister himself to death. He's a workaholic. He's just going to collapse and have a breakdown because nobody can put up with this level of craziness. That's the first possibility. The other possibility is that just the explosive growth of his ministry, the explosive amount of people who are now traveling from great distances to hear Jesus, the miracles they were hearing about, the rumors they were hearing about, the things they were hearing that he was saying, all that stuff was just completely freaking out his family. And they were just thinking, it's just Jesus. He's my brother. What, what in the world is going on? And they don't know what to do with it. So as we often do at times, they just say, you know what, let's just everybody calm down, which, by the way, is the most surefire way to make somebody not calm down is to tell them to calm down. That's a free marriage pointer for you right there. It's very possible they just say, we just got to get a handle on it. Let's go get Jesus. We'll bring him home and we'll figure out what's going on. But let's just stop this. Let's get a handle on it. And it's sort of like a family intervention. They just want to push the pause button on everything. 
But we know that one way or another, the way they were viewing it is they were saying Jesus is out of his mind, either because he thinks he's God or either because he's putting up with all this craziness around him, all these people swarming him, both possible. Remember that John 7, 5 tells us that Jesus' own blood brothers did not believe he was the Messiah for most of his ministry. They didn't believe he was God. So when they hear Jesus is walking around teaching that he's God, what? Oh, man, I'm going to kick his butt. That's probably what their reaction was. Jesus is about to have an encounter with a demoniac now. A demoniac is simply a person who is possessed by demons. There's only one devil, and if your Bible says devils, what it really should say is demons. Demons are evil, or the Bible calls them unclean spirits. They are servants of Satan who work to fulfill his plans on the earth. There's no satanic equivalent of the Holy Spirit. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once like the presence of God, the Holy Spirit is. Jesus is going to make it clear in this interaction that every person's spirit is like a house and that house can be occupied. It can have a tenant. If you're a believer, your house, your spirit is occupied by the Holy Spirit, God. If you're a non-believer, you have the potential to be occupied by demons if you extend the invitation to them. The problem is that the invitation can be extremely subtle. There are many different ways that if God is not the one occupying your spirit, you can extend that invitation to something that is demonic and say, hey, why don't you come and make a home here? When demons take possession of a person, they can speak and act through their victim, deranging both the person's mind and body. And so if you're thinking, well, there's no way, Jeff. I mean, I mean, we would know. We would see them like, you know, climbing on the roof in the shopping mall and stuff like that, you know, spinning their heads. Here's the deal. Satan's not going to do that today because we have the word of God. If you're a believer, you know exactly what to do. You have the promises of God, the authority of God. You have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in you. It would not be in Satan's best interest to manifest that way in our culture. Do you know where he does still do it? Where people have no idea what the Bible says in places, in exotic locations, in third world countries where superstition is so rife and he can accomplish a great deal through fear, it still happens. You can go to Haiti. It still happens. It's a very real thing. But here it wouldn't be beneficial to Satan. So he can speak and act through them, but he's not going to make them say, I will kill you by the power of Satan. He's not going to make anybody do that. He's going to make them accomplish his purposes in a much more covert manner. You need to understand that when we talk about possession, we're not talking about psychiatric problems. We know that because the demons we see in Scripture, when they speak through a person, have knowledge that goes way beyond any human understanding, especially at the time. These are not psychiatric problems. Are there real mental and psychiatric problems? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what one of Satan's greatest victories is in our modern society? One of his greatest victories is getting us to diagnose everything as a psychiatric or mental problem. I have no doubt that a large number of diagnosed psychiatric problems are spiritual in nature. But as a society, we hold to a default position called naturalism, which is the belief that the observable universe is all that there is. There is no supernatural dimension. So there is no diagnostic option in psychiatry for the supernatural. 
Jesus' ministry on the earth created a massive upsurge in demonic activity. The reasons are pretty obvious. When the Son of God in the flesh walks on the scene, that tends to be a little bit disruptive and disturbing to the powers of darkness. As Jesus' second coming approaches, we can expect to see much of the same thing, a dramatic upturn in demonic activity. Those of you that are paying attention will already see this. If you're not paying attention, I encourage you to pay close attention to the world of entertainment. Movies, music, TV, other streams of entertainment. Begin to discern what the themes are that keep coming up over and over and over again. There's a reason for it. There's a reason behind all of it. There's even in our time right now a dramatic upsurge in demonic activity. It just looks different to how it did in the days of Jesus. The work of demons has continued since the days of Adam and Eve, and the Bible says it will continue all the way until the end of the world is prophesied in the book of Revelation. If you want an interesting story, go to the Old Testament and read the account of King Saul and the witch of Endor. A real thing, he goes to see a medium and it gives you some insight into the supernatural world that we so often forget about. And the thing is, we talk about this and we think, oh, people are going to think we're crazy. Do you have any idea what percentage of the population believes in ghosts? It's over 50%. The vast majority of people believe in some form of supernatural dimension. You can say, do you believe in God? No. Do you believe in ghosts? Oh, of course. That's a very, very common view in our world today. Demons know the deity and the lordship of Jesus. They know that he's God. In scripture, they recognize Jesus as God before anybody else really does. They recognize him as God before Jesus even declares it publicly. And there are numerous examples in scripture of demons recognizing that Jesus has authority over them. They realize that they're destined for destruction. In Matthew 8, one of the demons says to Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? So they know that they have an end. They know they have a destiny of destruction. And they say to Jesus, it's not time yet. Why are you here to bother us? So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. This is what it says. It says, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Now remember, whenever scripture seems to be redundant, it's because Jesus is trying to draw our attention to something. So take a look in verse 22. Do you see in one sentence, one verse, he uses the phrase blind and mute twice. It's completely redundant. Why is that so important? Well, the Pharisees had their own specially trained exorcists who were performing exorcisms even before Jesus came on the scene. And history tells us they had specific procedures for performing exorcisms, just like Catholic exorcists do today. There's a specific procedure that they follow. The first procedure in a Jewish exorcism was having the demon identify himself. So write that down. That's the first fill-in on your outline. The first procedure in a Jewish exorcism was having the demon identify himself. And I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Even Jesus did this. In a few weeks, we're going to see Jesus visit a town called Gadara. He encounters a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. He asks the demon to identify himself. Terrifyingly, the demon famously answers, My name is Legion for we are many. Jesus is following the procedure of a Jewish exorcism at the time. So here's what this meant, though. An exorcism could not be performed on any man who was mute, who could not speak. 
because the demon would not identify himself. The procedure could not be followed. So this was considered the most dangerous type of possession there was. And it was considered impossible to exorcise a demon from a man who could not speak. And that's why the crowd is amazed by what Jesus does. He casts the demons out of the man despite the man's inability to speak. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. This is unique, and they understand most of the people. This is something only the Messiah could do. Only God in the flesh could do this. Write this down. It proved that Jesus' spiritual authority was unprecedented. His spiritual authority was unprecedented. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. So how are the Pharisees going to perceive this how are they going to process this verse 24 now when the pharisees heard it they said this fellow doesn't cast out demons except by beelzebub the ruler of demons beelzebub is just another name for satan it came from the name of a philistine god who was their equivalent of the god baal the pharisees knew that jesus was doing all his miracles by the power of god but they wouldn't admit it because they were unwilling to submit to his authority They know that this is God working in their midst. But if they admit that, then they have to recognize him as God. Submit to him as God. Not that different today. I believe there are a lot of people who know that there is a God, but I I don't want to get into that because of the implications of that. Because if there is a God, I have to deal with some very difficult questions. And that meant they had to explain his miracles some other way. So they publicly declared that Jesus was from Satan and he was only able to command demons because he was a prince of demons. They attributed the work of God to Satan. That's a serious, serious accusation as we're going to find out. Verse 25, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Not the first time we've seen Jesus read somebody's mind. Just last week we saw him read the mind of Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus is saying, forget theology, guys. Your your argument doesn't even make logical sense. It makes no sense. Satan is declaring war on Satan for the benefit of Satan. That doesn't even make sense. Don't miss this little side note here. This is Jesus himself making it clear that Satan does have a kingdom. Write that down. For everyone who says there is no Satan, there is no hell, here's Jesus himself declaring. It's not going to be the last time. Satan does have a kingdom. His kingdom is this world. Satan is the prince of this world. It's on your outline, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And his kingdom is at war with the kingdom of Jesus. That is the teaching of Jesus. That's the teaching of Jesus. If you need a refresher on that, go back and study the temptation of Christ. Right at the beginning of his ministry, Satan offers Jesus what if he will bow down and worship him? The kingdoms of this world. He offers in the world. Why can he do that? Because he owns this world right now. Of course, Jesus doesn't take him up on the offer. He says, no, I'll just take it myself, thanks. Verse 27, Jesus continues and he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it had. The king was in their midst, displaying his power by binding Satan and his demons right before their eyes. Jesus is saying, what's different about the way I'm casting out demons to the way your exorcist casts out demons? What's the difference? That my exorcisms are greater? Bring them here. Bring your exorcists here, and they will publicly testify that I'm doing this by the power of God. They'll recognize what I'm doing. Oh, but wait. If you do that, they'll be testifying against you, and you'll have to admit that I'm God. Verse 29, he goes on and he says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Firstly, if your Bible says good man instead of strong man, it doesn't mean good man. Good man, strong man, it just means head of the house. If you need to write that in your Bible, you should do that. It changes the context a lot. It means head of the house. So what's Jesus saying? Let's break down the analogy he's making. The house is simply a demon-possessed person, a demoniac. That's what the house is. The strong man, write this down, is Satan. The strong man is Satan. Jesus is explaining to them using logic here. He's saying, okay, your idea that Satan is casting out his own demons, that doesn't make sense. Let me share with you something that does make sense. He says, if I can go into the house of Satan, this person's soul, if I can go there, and bind him up, then I have to be stronger than him. I have to be greater than him. My power has to supersede his. If I can go into that person's soul, bind up Satan, and free the person from his control, plunder his goods, Jesus is the person going in, binding up the strong man, Satan, and plundering his goods, the person's soul, going in and saying, I'll, I'll have that, thank you very much. Jesus is also explaining prophetically what he's going to do on the cross through his death and resurrection. He came to the earth, Satan's domain, Satan's house, to plunder his goods, Satan's belongings. Who are Satan's belongings? You and I. You and I, before Jesus went to the cross. He owned the deed to us as well. But first, he would have to bind up Satan. So how would he do that on the cross? By removing Satan's power over us. And what is Satan's power over us? Sin. The power of sin. That's his claim to us. So Jesus says, I'm going to go deal with that. I'm going to bind up Satan. I'm going to deal with his power, the power of sin. And then I'm going to plunder his goods. I'm going to take my people, my children. I like that. I just like Jesus. There's just a little bit of a cocky edge to that that I really like. I've come to bind up Satan and plunder his house. That's what I'm here to do. And he says it publicly. Puts him on notice. I'm calling it right now. You're not going to be able to do anything about it either. You must understand that Jesus and Satan are not equal. Every chance I can get, I want to harp on this. They're not yin and yang, light and dark, two sides of the same coin. Jesus is the creator of all things, including Satan. Satan began his existence as an archangel in heaven named Lucifer. He rebelled against God but Jesus preexisted. He's always existed. He's eternal. Satan is finite. He had a beginning. And praise God, he will have an end. He has a beginning and an end. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning. He has no end. Satan's equal is Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel is the one who tosses Lucifer out of heaven when he rebels against Jesus. As I always love to say, Jesus doesn't even get off the throne. Just says, Michael, go take out the trash, will you? 
Jesus can't even be bothered to get off the throne. Jesus is almighty God. Satan's not anything close. I preach that because that's the beginning point of understanding everything about spiritual warfare. You have to understand the authority and supreme power of Jesus. When you go up against Satan, this is not a 50-50 fight. It's not a flip of the coin. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's a decided contest already. And you need to know that as you stand in the authority of Jesus and you deal with the attacks of Satan and his schemes. Verse 30, then Jesus says, in a very seeker-friendly manner, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. We see here again what we discussed last week. Write this down. There is no neutral position. There's no neutral position. There's no middle ground with Jesus. From his own lips, Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. So if you think, I'll, I'll just be a good person, then it'll all work out. It'll all work out. Jesus says to you, why in the world would you think that? I never said anything like that. Where would you get that idea from? Imagine me saying to you, you know, I'm, I'm going to drive to Whistler after church this morning. Do you want to come with me? And you say, I'm neutral. I'm neutral on that. <laughs> there is no neutral. You're either coming with me or you're not. And here's the point. You're going to miss your ride. I'm going to leave without you. Understand that when it comes to Jesus, to not make a decision is to make a decision. To not make a decision is to make a decision. It's an invitation. To not respond to the invitation is to decline the invitation. You and I must understand there is a cosmic, transdimensional spiritual war going on, and we are on one of two sides. There is no Switzerland. That is the reality. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you think. That is the reality. And Jesus has shown us that reality clearly in his word and clearly through his ministry on the earth. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're not with me. And he's just getting started with them. Verse 31, he says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So when you read this, everybody begins wondering, so what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven? Mark 3.30 will tell us that Jesus is saying this specifically because the Pharisees have said he has an unclean spirit. He's saying this specifically because they accused him of being a prince of demons. In this case, Jesus is referring to their deliberate rejection of him when they knew that he was from God. They knew that he was from God. They couldn't deny the reality of what the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus, so they attributed what was from God to being from Satan. They would not acknowledge God, despite having more than enough revelation to know that this was truth. Here's a mind-blowing concept for all of us. Jesus told us that God has forgiven all sins. He's forgiven all sins. Like past tense, like it's done. Every sin is forgiven. Check out verse 31 again. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Future tense because he hasn't died and risen again yet. Now it's past tense for us. Every sin and blasphemy has been forgiven men. God can and will forgive all sins. That's not conditional even upon receiving Christ. Hang with me. Don't stone me yet. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So 
1 John 2.2 says this. It's on your outlines, I think. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. Not just Christians, the whole world. But then Jesus goes on and says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to non-believers? It's only one thing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to non-believers, if you don't believe in and follow Jesus, is one thing, to lead you to Jesus, to lead you to Jesus. If you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit is not at work trying to improve your life. He's not at work trying to heal you from your physical ailments or emotional issues or fix your relationships. If you don't know Jesus, the Holy Spirit is trying to do one thing in your life, lead you to Jesus. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's mentioned multiple times in the Bible. When you reject or dismiss the Holy Spirit as being false, and to say it's not true, to say it's a lie, or to say it doesn't exist is all the same thing. When you reject the Holy Spirit as being untrue, you are blaspheming him. You are slandering him. You are calling God a liar. Not with words, but with the response of your heart. And the person who dies in that state dies with unforgivable sin. But as we're going to find out, the terrifying thing is you can reach that point before you die. It's the sin that everybody who will spend eternity separated from God will be guilty of. Having enough to respond to God and choosing not to. Saying it's not true in one way, shape, or form. There is no sin more serious than having an invite from the Almighty God to join His family and saying no thank you. Jesus says that's the one thing you can't do. You're not going to spend eternity in hell because of a list of things you did wrong. Those have all been covered by Jesus. You're going to spend eternity in hell for rejecting Jesus. And when you think about it, there's no greater offense. There's nothing more serious you can do. If you don't think it's serious, then you're not taking the glory of God seriously. It's a serious, serious thing. Write this down. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus, our only means of salvation. God doesn't send people to hell. People go to hell because they refuse to accept the provision he has made to avoid it. We sometimes think, well, how could God send people to hell? You don't understand. It's your default destination. He doesn't have to send you there. It's your default destination unless you choose to accept the invitation from God to be saved. If you reject him, there is no hope for you. Verse 32, he goes on and says, anyone who speaks a word, this is pretty interesting, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man himself, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is about much more than words because Jesus is saying, you can blaspheme me and still be forgiven. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Is he, is he saying that the Holy Spirit's more important than Jesus? Well, when Jesus is speaking here, he's addressing the Pharisees, but other people are listening in. And what he's describing is literally going to happen. There will be many of these people who will blaspheme Jesus as they cry out, crucify him. But there will also be many among those people who will then receive him after his resurrection. And what have they done? Well, they blaspheme Jesus. 
But after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit came to the earth, the Holy Spirit began working on them. And they responded to the work of the Holy Spirit. They blasphemed Jesus, but they didn't blaspheme the Spirit and they repented. Jesus said, there's still hope for you. You can still come back. You can still come back. But here's the thing. You can't reject the Holy Spirit and simultaneously claim ignorance. You know, if you're ever worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, it it comes down to this. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior and your God? If you have, you're good, you're good. If you haven't, and you're in that place where you say, man, I know that this is true. I'm not prepared to deal with everything that comes along with that. I'm not prepared to deal with the implications of that. So I'm gonna stay neutral. You are in danger. I would be lying to you if I told you what you want to hear, which is that you're fine and it'll all work out. You're not okay if you're in that place. There is a clock that is winding down and you have no idea how much longer you'll have to make that decision, how much more opportunity you'll have. You have no idea. You're not ignorant. Don't stay in that place. Don't stay in that place. Verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, epic insult, love it. So Jesus challenges the Pharisees when he's talking about the good tree and the bad tree, good fruit and bad fruit. He's saying, it doesn't make sense. I can't be bad. I can't be evil and produce good fruit. It just doesn't even make sense that you're accusing me of being a prince of demons as though the work of Satan on the earth is going around healing people, saving people, and filling them with hope. He's like, it just doesn't make sense. I can't be evil and be doing good, godly things. If I'm doing godly things, then I must be godly. If I'm doing evil things, then I must be evil. He's saying, come on, use your brains. Brood of vipers is a heavy, heavy insult by Jesus. He's calling them the offspring of vipers, serpents, the creature that represented Satan and sin and evil to the Jew. It's an allusion all the way back to Genesis 3 where the Lord declares war against Satan in the Garden of Eden and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Satan in the form of a snake. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you've lined up with Satan in the war against me. You've lined up with Satan. Jesus is telling them, yes, Satan's your daddy, and you're Satan's kids. It's taking it up a notch, but I'd like to say uh, they kind of started it. And then he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying, listen, the issue here is not the words that you say. You don't go to hell because you say the words, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He's saying the issue here is that what you're saying is coming from your heart. It's indicative of what's in your heart. It's just revealing what's going on in the deepest part of you. And he says, you have a problem there, a serious, serious problem. You have contempt for me, and you have a commitment to reject me no matter what. No matter what. When he talks about words, the question is this. At the end of the day, what would it be like if we could hear back everything we've said about Jesus in our lives? 
he's saying, listen, everything you say about me is ultimately going to be condemning of you or it's going to save you. On that day of judgment, there won't be anybody who'll be able to say, but, uh, but, I, but I didn't know. The idea is that if Jesus wanted to, he could go back and say, well, here, here's this. Remember the time when you said you just weren't sure about me? Remember that time when somebody invited you and you just said, I'm just not ready? Your own words condemn you. You had the chance. and You declined it. In verse 38, this, this one just blows my mind. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. First of all, Are you kidding me? He's ripped these guys apart. He's done a miracle right before their eyes that nobody has ever done before. And they say, hey, you know, we want to believe. Just show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign. They don't skip a beat. Don't skip a beat. That's how hard-hearted these guys are. But I bet you all know someone or have had a conversation with someone where you talk about God and what they're saying is, you know, I just can't wrap my head around God because of this issue. And you address that issue. And they don't go, wow. Wow. I, I need to deal with this. They don't skip a beat. They just go on to the next question. You ever had a conversation like that? That's exactly what this is. They've determined that no matter how many answers, how many signs they get, they're always going to need one more. Let me tell you something. An appetite for signs from God only creates an appetite for more signs from God. You know who saw more signs from God than anybody else? The children of Israel in Egypt. How did they get out of Egypt? Epic plagues, defying nature, physics, logic, everything. Every drop of water in the land turning to blood. Fire from the sky, frogs, boils. I mean, just incredible things on cue. They got to see all that. They were dramatically freed. They get chased by the Egyptian army. God parts the Red Sea for them and then closes it behind them, killing the Egyptian army. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? Well, I'll lead you by a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. Well, we're hungry. We're hungry. I will make food fall from the sky. We're thirsty. I will make a rock produce water for you. How does the story end? They don't enter the promised land because of their what? unbelief their unbelief are you kidding me i would only need the ocean to part in front of me one time (laughs) just one i'd be good if anything happened i'd be like i need yeah yeah, i still got the photo yeah he did it okay we're good god's still good he's still real i'm good man the person who says i need a sign God says, there'll never be enough for you. Jesus says this in verse 39. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He's talking about spiritual adultery. He's saying, your generation is marked by spiritual unfaithfulness to me. He says, and no sign will be given to it. Except one. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. They were hoping for a special effects type sign. Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you a sign from the scripture. Why? Because the Bible tells us that faith doesn't come by seeing. Where does faith come from? It comes by hearing. And hearing what? The Word of God. The Word of God. 
He says in verse 44, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is quoting from the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, and he's saying that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, he'll be in the heart of the earth, dead for three days and three nights. This is why the resurrection is so important. Write this down. Jesus himself said that the resurrection would be the defining sign of his ministry. He said, you want a sign? I'll give you one sign. But it's a good one. I'm going to rise from the dead after three days. It would be the proof that he was everything he said he was and he could do everything he said he could do, like forgive our sins. If you're into apologetics, the resurrection is the great evidence of the deity of Jesus, that he's God, that he's true. There are many, many great books out there about it, but unbelievably, it's provable historically, it's undeniable philosophically, and it wins out every battle of logic. There's a reason why William Lane Craig, the most famous apologist we have, he doesn't lose debates because his specialty is the resurrection. Nobody can refute it. There's simply too much evidence, and every argument against it is as logical as the Pharisees claiming Jesus was driving out demons by the power of Satan. It falls apart. It still stands today as the greatest evidence that Jesus was God. This passage gets a lot of attention, too, because of the debate around which day of the week Jesus was crucified on. We don't, we don't have time to get into all of it. I wish we could, but here's what I want to say. Any way you slice it, you can't get three nights in if Jesus is crucified on a Friday and rises on a Sunday. It's just impossible. And here's Jesus himself saying very specifically, three days, three nights. So, it's most likely a Thursday, but it's definitely not a Friday because it would contradict the words of Jesus Christ himself, and I'm pretty sure that wasn't a typo on his part. Always remember that unless you can anchor it in the word of God, I would encourage you to be very suspicious of church traditions. Even here, one of the things that I'm passionate about with New Hope is everything we do, we want it to be for a reason. We don't want to do anything because that's just what you do at church. We want to do it because it's in the word of God and we can point to where the word of God encourages us to do it. So if it's just a church tradition, I would say be very suspicious of it and dismiss it if you can't anchor it in the word of God. Verse 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh, the city that Jonah preached to, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So get this, when God sends his prophet Jonah to the wicked city of Nineveh, Jonah doesn't preach the gospel. Read the story. All that Jonah says is, uh, yeah, you're wicked, God sees it. He's going to destroy this entire city in 40 days. Shalom. And he's out, you know. Here's the thing. They believed him. They repented and they begged God for mercy, saying maybe he'll change his mind and spare us. And he does. Here's what's interesting. According to Jesus, he didn't just spare them, but he saved them. They were saved eternally. And Jesus is saying, listen, they're going to stand up against you Pharisees and they're, they're going to testify all we had to go on was a promise that God would destroy us in 40 days. That's all we had and we recognized that he was God. Yeah, Jesus in the flesh standing in front of you and you wouldn't accept him as God. 
They're going to testify against these Pharisees who refuse to accept God. Then he says, verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. This is interesting to me. It's a story in the Old Testament about the queen of Sheba from Africa who hears about the legendary, unprecedented wisdom and riches of King Solomon. And she travels just to be in the presence of Solomon and see it for herself. In her quest to encounter the glory of Solomon, she encounters the glory of Solomon's God. And it is recorded in 1 Kings that she speaks out, Blessed be your God. She acknowledges that he is the true God. She knows nothing about him except that he's Solomon's God. That's all she has to go on. But she recognizes that he's the true God. There's no prayer of salvation recorded. She's just confronted with evidence that a real God has blessed Solomon. And she responds to the evidence she has. Jesus makes it clear she's saved. And on the day of judgment, she's going to stand up and testify against him and say, all I got to see was the second-hand account of God's glory manifested in Solomon and his kingdom. That was enough for me. I could read between the lines. You had the Messiah right in front of you performing miracles. How can you claim ignorance? Scripture seemed to make it pretty clear And you can write this down. God holds people accountable for how they respond to the revelation of him that they have received. Whether it's a big revelation or a small revelation. Do you remember last week, Jesus was talking about some of the cities in northern Israel around him. He said to Capernaum, it will be better for Sodom, the people of Sodom, on the day of judgment than for you. Because if I had done in Sodom what I did in you, They would have repented. So the idea is God's judgment of those who reject him is more severe based upon how much revelation you've had. So the more revelation of God you've had, the more serious the consequences are going to be. In Romans 1.20, the Apostle Paul writes, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul is saying, listen, even the guy in the jungle in the middle of nowhere who's never heard anything about God is able to look up at night, see the stars, see the glory of the universe around him, and come to the logical conclusion there is something greater than him at work. He says he'll be held accountable for that. That's been revealed to him. The word of God says he has set eternity in the hearts of man. So the idea is there's something in us that is able to recognize innately that there is more to this life than just what we see in the observable universe. We're made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis points out that our conscience is part of the image of God. There's no culture in the world where people admire somebody who cheats on a friend's wife with them. It's not in any culture. And the cultures didn't get together and say, we've got to have some standards. It's just innate. It's something in all of us. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, between the observable universe, between your conscience, between being made in the image of God, between eternity being set in the heart of man, there is enough for every person to recognize there is a God. But there is condemnation for the person who has all that and then says, you know what? I'm going to carve something out of wood put it in my hut 
and say, that's God. God will say, what you did is you decided you would rather have a God in your own image. You've rejected me and instead made a God for yourself. Those who have never heard of God even condemn themselves when they reject their conscience. And now, in our age, the Holy Spirit working on them instead say, no, I'll determine what's right and wrong. I'll make that choice. If you've ever wondered what about that person who lives and dies in the jungle and never hears about Jesus, the answer is God will judge them according to the revelation that they've had. And here's what we know. There won't be anybody on the day of judgment who will be able to claim that they've been unfairly judged. The idea is this, that everybody has received enough revelation to respond in some way to the glory of God. And I know there's a million hypothetical situations you can come up with. You're like, well, what about this? But realize this. This is where you rest. Are you more loving than God? Are you more fair than God? Are you more compassionate than God? Are you more gracious than God? Are you more good than God? You're not. You can trust that he's going to judge fairly and that none of us are going to be left saying, oh, man, that's, that's just not right. Jesus is telling these Pharisees that they're without hope. They have, in essence, blasphemed the Holy Spirit because there's no greater revelation they could have than Jesus in the flesh. Even when the Holy Spirit comes onto the earth in Acts chapter 2, that Holy Spirit can't give these guys any greater revelation than what they've had right now in front of them. And Jesus is looking at this specific group of Pharisees and he's saying, I know you enough to know that you're never going to respond. You're never going to respond. We see this as well in the controversial account of Pharaoh in Egypt who despite plague after plague, the Bible tells us 10 times he hardened his own heart. And then after that, God hardened his heart. The idea is he reached this point where it was, hey, you know what? I got nothing else for you. I got nothing else for you. I've killed every firstborn in your country overnight with an angel of death. Made it rain fire from the sky, turned water to blood. I, I got nothing else for you. Maybe he'll repent on his deathbed. No, he won't. No, he won't. His heart is set. And he reached that point before he died where he was beyond being reached. He was beyond hope. And Jesus is saying to some of these Pharisees, some of you guys are there right now. So then why bother with missions? This is a good logical question. Why bother with missions? Why go and take the gospel to people if you know you'll only make them be judged more harshly? Why would you do that? Well, firstly, Jesus told us to. That's a really good reason, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, going into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's all the reason we need. But secondly, if people hear the gospel, they can begin to live for the glory and fame of God instead of wasting their life. God can become more famous on the earth. His glory can be manifested in that person's life to other people who are in their sphere of influence. They'll become useful to the kingdom of God. That's a good thing. Thirdly, following Jesus is the most meaningful life they could have on this earth. Do you realize that? It's, it's not that when you become a Christian you miss out on everything in life. Being a believer is the best life you could have right here on the earth. 
Fourthly, the Bible makes it clear that every person's received enough revelation of Jesus to be judged fairly by him. But the Bible also teaches us that receiving more revelation, more than they should need, could cause a person to respond differently. Jesus told us that last week when he said, if I had done the works in Sodom that I had done in you, they would have repented. Now, is that Sodom being treated unfairly? No, they had Lot. They had two angels visit them. and They didn't change. Jesus is just making the point, listen, but if I did this there, even they would repent. So the idea is while every person will have enough revelation of God to be judged by him according to the amount of revelation they've received, greater revelation can make a difference. It really can make a difference. It matters. There are still many, many, many reasons to preach the gospel and share Jesus with those who don't know him. Now Jesus gives us a heavy lesson in demonology and exorcism. Verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus is telling them, listen, I can cast Satan and his demons out of a person. But if that person doesn't receive and welcome the gospel, if that person doesn't invite the Holy Spirit to occupy them, Satan's demons are just going to come back to a neat and tidy house. And they're going to come back seven times stronger than before. If the person who's been freed from Satan's grasp doesn't renounce Satan and embrace Christ, they'll end up worse than they were the first time around. Your spirit is a house either occupied by the Holy Spirit or potentially occupied by Satan's demons. But it doesn't stay empty for very long. It doesn't stay empty for very long. Just a couple of months ago, crazy story, demon-possessed lady shows up here on church while we're setting up in the morning. This is the stuff you miss out on when you don't volunteer, okay? <laughs> demon-possessed lady shows up, wailing, crying hysterically, furious that demons have made her come here to this specific spot, screaming that you shouldn't be manipulated by that. You should go to church because you want to, not because demons are making you. I said, I agree. And she's just going off. She's inconsolable. And here's what she's doing. When, when a person is possessed that way, you don't have a logical conversation with them. You don't do that. This is a spiritual matter. I'll never forget this. And I just said to her, I said, well, do you want to be free? And she said, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's when I knew there's no point here. There's no point. We can sweep out this house. You're just going to be worse off in a week than you are if we deal with this right now. So I told her in the name of Jesus to leave, and she did. And I hope she gets freedom. But we have to understand there has to be that desire to embrace Christ or everything is for nothing. You're actually doing them a disservice. Jesus has just described the person who recognizes Jesus as God and says, yeah, I know he's God. I want him to fix my problems, but I don't, I, I don't want him to be God of my life. I want his power to fix my problems, but I don't want his power to rule my life. Jesus can cast out every demon and set him free. But they're not going to stay that way. If you reform your life, if you quit all your bad habits, if you eat healthy and have kale every day, 
but don't get Jesus in your life. It's all pointless and meaningless. When it comes to social justice and missions, we have to understand this. We are in a generation, and there's some real good to this, but we're in a generation that is crazy about social justice, especially in the church. There are many churches who believe the church solely exists to help the poor. They're wrong, by the way. That's not the primary purpose of the church. It's an outflow of Jesus being at work in the life of believers. But the church does not exist to be a charity. The church exists for the glory of Jesus because our ultimate destiny is to be the bride of Christ. Our ultimate destiny is not to be UNICEF. All these good things happen when believers who are disciples and are growing in their faith and growing in the knowledge of Christ look around them and desire to make a difference. That's how those things happen. They're the outflowing of following Jesus. But there are so many Christians who are out there doing good work that is not connected to the gospel in any way. And they are not heeding the warning of Jesus. Hey, we're building wells in Africa. Hey, we're doing crisis counseling for people. Hey, that's great. You're sweeping out the house. That's awesome. How are you going to get Jesus in there? How are you going to get Jesus in there? Because if you don't, Jesus said seven times as many demons will come back and grab a hold of them. You can help them get their life together. You can put them through counseling. You can get them off whatever substance they're addicted to. Get them through whatever depression they're dealing with. If they don't have Jesus, it's meaningless. You're doing them a disservice. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy concept. Write this down. It comes down to this. Reformation without regeneration only makes things worse over the long haul. Reformation without regeneration only makes things worse over the long haul. Take a look at every country that decided we're going to force Christian beliefs on everybody through our political reign. Take a look at them all. Has it ever worked when we've said we're going to create reform in our country without regeneration? We're going to legislate righteousness. We're going to make people be holy. We're going to make people love Jesus. Has that ever worked? It's never worked. What's happened to all those things? Things ended up seven times worse. Seven times worse. Got very dark and twisted very fast. Why? Because reformation without regeneration is meaningless. Jesus said one thing you need. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. The Bible says, according to the words of Jesus, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. Doesn't mean anything. Jesus ends by saying, so shall it be with this wicked generation. Jesus is saying, this generation is like that. I can free you from Satan and the power of sin, but you won't submit to me as Lord. So Satan's just gonna come right back to a cleaned up house, go to work again. You'll never be free until I'm the one occupying your life. You'll never be free. Got one last little bit and then we'll wrap up right here. Hang with me. Verse 46, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Remember that intervention that was happening at the beginning? They've just gotten to the house where Jesus is at right now. They might have heard Jesus call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. 
Under their laws, you could have been stoned for that. So they're pretty much at this place like, tell Jesus to come out here right now. Let's just get out of here before things go south in a hurry. We know from the scriptures that Jesus had at least four brothers. We know their names and two sisters. We don't know their names. It's in Matthew and in Mark. Technically, they're all half brothers and half sisters. Technically. Jesus was the only one whose father was the father. And there's many church traditions to the contrary, but they're wrong. They're flat out wrong. How do we know that? Because this is what's in the Bible. And we're always going to side with God's word over church tradition. Always. Verse 47, then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. In Luke's account of this, it records Jesus saying, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus isn't dissing his earthly family. He's just saying, my spiritual family is a much, much bigger deal than my earthly family. A much, much bigger deal. To make this point clear, even Jesus' own earthly family needed him as their savior. They all needed him as their savior. And what a thought this is to any of us who are believers in Jesus, that you are in a closer relationship with Jesus than even his own flesh and bone brothers and sisters were. You're closer to him than they were. You're closer family to him. And he's not ashamed of you. He's not telling the angels, that's my family and him. That's my family and her. He's not saying that. He's pointing at you and he's saying that that's my brother. That's my sister. I'm not ashamed for you to know who they are. In Ephesians 5.30 it says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. When Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he's not saying what you do saves you. He's not talking about salvation by works. He's just saying, listen, those people who love me will naturally obey me. They'll naturally want to please me. They'll naturally desire the same things that I desire. That's the evidence that they've been saved by grace. Jesus on another occasion will say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not keep my commandments to prove you love me. He's saying you'll do it. It's just what you'll do. Obeying Jesus and doing the will of the Father is just what you will desire to do when you love Jesus. You'll have an appetite for it. One last note about church traditions. One last note. Jesus is being called to his mother, Mary. Instead of using this as an opportunity to elevate her and tell everybody how special she is, what does Jesus do? He points to his disciples and his followers, and he says, my mother and my brother are these who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is literally saying, my relationship with these men and women who follow me is a closer relationship than my relationship with my mother because she's my mother. And Jesus had a spiritual relationship with his mother as well. And the spiritual relationship he shared with her, she was a follower of his as well. That relationship was more important than their blood relationship. The spiritual relationship superseded it. These events are going to mark a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From this point on, over a year into his ministry, from this point on, he will only teach publicly in parables. Only in parables. We're going to discover the purpose of parables is to conceal, not to reveal, to conceal the truth 
from those who are not genuinely and sincerely interested in hearing it. Jesus is literally saying to the Pharisees, I'm done debating you. We're done. I'm going to speak now in a way that you will not be able to understand. You won't be able to debate me because you won't even be able to perceive what I'm speaking on. You will have no clue. He's going to focus all his energies on people who are willing to hear him. Here's why this is terrifying. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not to die in the place of unbelief. If that's what it was, Jesus would have said, he who dies in the place of unbelief dies in the place of unbelief. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a state that you can reach long before you die when God says, listen, you've had enough chances. You've had enough evidence. And God looks at you and says, here's what I know. You're never going to turn to me. So we're done. We're done. You've hardened your heart. Now I'm going to harden your heart. That's a serious, serious thing. Don't let yourself be caught in the place where you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying, I'm neutral. Or, man, those people are just, they're emotionally manipulated. That pastor's just hypnotizing everybody with his constant hand motions. <laughs> they're just caught up in emotion. <laughs> they're deluded. Don't be caught in the place of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There's a time we don't know when. There's a place we don't know where when you will reach the point of no return. God once told his prophet Jeremiah, don't pray any longer for this people. They're lost. Jeremiah said, preach to them, but don't pray for them and just know they're not going to respond. It's done. It's over with. Final story, I promise. During World War II, there was an American battleship, an aircraft carrier, and several other smaller boats that were patrolling the waters of the North Atlantic. I love war stories. And they were looking for German U-boats. And one evening, several pilots, four planes, took off to go out and search for U-boats from the air. And they were told to be back by a specific hour, a specific time. But the leader of those four planes said, no, we're going to stay out a little bit longer. He did it completely on purpose because he thought, you know, with just a little more time, I can find one and secure a really impressive hit here, a really impressive strike for the Allies. As the sun set, a German armada sailed into the area. The American fleet was in serious trouble because they were outgunned, they were outmanned, they were outnumbered. And unbeknownst to the pilots, radio silence was ordered between all of the ships and those aircraft were still in the air. At this point, as their fuel is getting dangerously low, the pilots radioed to the American ship and said, hey, can you, can you turn on the lights? There's no reply. Hey, can you turn on the lights? We need to come in to land. There's no reply. And the lights never went on because turning them on would have jeopardized the lives of thousands of men. And it's recorded historically how the men on the aircraft carrier stood there in the dark and watched in horror as the four planes crashed into the icy waters of the Atlantic. And if you're not a believer today, you are hearing the word of the Lord today. You're hearing the warning. There will come a time when the Lord, the commander-in-chief of everything, is going to order radio silence. The lights are going to be dimmed, and you will not be able to find your way home anymore you will have blasphemed the holy spirit and there will be no hope the opportunity will be gone today god is offering you eternal life there is not the option of neutrality
to not decide is to decide. Only a fool, only a fool would hear the warning and say, that may be another time. And if you love and serve Jesus, as many of us do, I hope that we'll be stirred and reminded to witness. I hope that we'll be stirred and reminded that we need to pray passionately. We need to express ourselves clearly with the gospel. I was just so moved as I was prepping this by the reality of what a lie it is, that there is always more time. There's always more time. I don't think that's from the Lord. I think that's Satan's best strategy for any of us who are desiring to share Christ with someone is to tell us, don't, don't rush it. If you go too fast, you might blow it. Just go slow. There's always more time. Even to now where the biggest model of evangelism that's embraced by most believers is relational evangelism, which is just over a great period of time, I will win them over to Christ. The only problem with that is every person has a clock hanging over their head, ticking down to a point in time that none of us know. None of us. Could be their physical death or it could be the moment where they blaspheme the Holy Spirit and they're done. They may reach that point and think you're awesome. They may reach that point and think you're a great friend. But the opportunity to know Christ may be gone. It may be gone. Man, I, I know for myself, I have to get a lot more serious about sharing Christ with people. The stakes are so high. They are so high. And Jesus has been so clear in his word. You know, if you're a, a speech maker, you always want to end on a big up note. But I'm not a speech maker. I'm a Bible teacher. And we want to end on a heavy note because it is a heavy topic. And to end any other way would be doing a disservice to the seriousness of what God has revealed to us in his word today. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me and, and close your eyes? And the first and most pressing and most important order of business is simply anyone in this room who might be here today and say, I have been in neutral. I have been rejecting Jesus. And I realize I just, ca I just can't do that anymore. I recognize that this is my opportunity. This is my chance. And I'm not going to gamble anymore on missing Jesus, on missing his invitation. I know he's forgiven my sin, but I also know that I can't receive that forgiveness without also receiving him as God. If you're here today and you're ready to do that for the first time, do it. Do it. And today is the day of your salvation. Let me just pray for us. <sighs> Father, we, we know in your word, you have not presented the gospel as something that we can take our time with. We understand that there is an urgency to this. Father, I know that probably every single one of us is having faces and names and people flash through our minds. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the lie that we can just take our time and that you would fill us with the truth that your gospel is the only thing that has the power to save. 
and you've given it to us. Father, where, there, where there's fear in us, would our conviction about the importance of eternity be stronger? Where there's apprehension and nervousness and doubt, would our love for you override all of it? Would you be greater in us than all of those things, God? Fill us with an urgency to live out the very reason that you sent us the Holy Spirit. As you told your disciples, you were sending us the Holy Spirit so that we would have power to be your witnesses. So Father, just once again, if we've forgotten it, Father, we receive your power, your Holy Spirit, understanding that you have filled us with everything we need to be your representatives on the earth. You've equipped us, God. This is not about our personality. This is not about how well we can argue. This is about the power of God inside of us. And where we've stopped believing that, would you stir it up and wake it up again, God? May we represent you in the way that you deserve to be represented on the earth. We love you, God. I want to ask that you just spend a moment in prayer. Be open to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, but also maybe be in prayer for those people in your life that you know who need the gospel and have not responded to it. Don't just pray for them lightly, man. Pray that God would break your heart for them, that you would have a burden for them. Not just a little note to remember to pray, but that you would have the heart of God for them, his passion for them. That he would fill you with the same desire he has to be able to say of them, there's my brother, there's my sister, there's my mother, there's my father.